Well, we turn in the word of God to Jeremiah 31. And these verses before us raise the question, what is real conversion like? Yes, it's good to ask the Christian. But sometimes not all Christians are as accurate as they should be. And sometimes they get distracted and lose the train of thought. So we need an infallible, unchanging testimony, witness, record of true conversion. And Jeremiah describes it for you here in a most striking manner to enable you to understand and to ask yourselves, am I converted? Am I converted? Every person in this gathering, from the youngest to the oldest, to ask this basic question, am I converted? Because this is so essential, isn't it? This is what really matters. And so we look then at Jeremiah, especially from verse 18 under this heading, true conversion. Now the first thing he does is he illustrates conversion. He illustrates, perhaps we should more accurately say, the unconverted before they are converted. Look at verse 18. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised. As a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke, turn thou me, and I shall be turned. For thou art the Lord my God. Jeremiah, in this section, uses a number of illustrations to help you see the basic problem. The first is Ephraim, the beginning of verse 18. Now, in the Old Testament, Ephraim was the largest of the ten northern tribes. Though it was known as Israel, it was often called Ephraim because of its sheer size. But neither Ephraim nor Israel existed anymore when Jeremiah wrote these words, and that is quite important. Why? Because of their sin and their rebellion, they no longer existed. God had warned them time after time. He sent them many, many preachers, but we read frequently that they pulled the shoulder, they rejected, they turned away, they refused to hear, they would not repent. They rejected the word that God sent to them. And so they reaped the price of that. And yet here is something remarkable. God comes and speaks of sinners as being like Ephraim. What is a sinner like? What are the unconverted like? No matter how often they are spoken to, they reject. They argue against it. They are like Ephraim, stubborn, rebellious, hard, cold and indifferent, not wanting the word of God. No interest in the being of God. No interest in the warnings that God sends to them. How many 
Christians there are who look back at life and they say, how foolish was I all those years, all those times God spoke to me through other people. Christians who came beside me, they showed me what it was like to be a Christian. I laughed at them. They gave me something to read and I threw it in the fire perhaps. Man called Atherton. He was the first secretary of the Sovereign Grace Union in England. His parents were converted, but he was not. And he hated them because of that. And there were times his mother would leave a little tract on the mantelpiece for him coming home from the pub drunk. He would take it and burn it. And anger. Time after time. And on one particular occasion he did it. Went to bed. Got up the next morning. And he records that he was on his way to work. He saw a man going to work. Coming in the opposite direction. Very cheerful. Whistling away. And he came up. Right to where Atherton was. And he fell. Just fell to the ground. Atherton thought, oh, he must be drunk. So he leaned down to get a breath. He took a hip flask out of his pocket, opened it, thinking that the smell of the whiskey would bring him round. But the man actually had died. At that instant, it was as if he heard a voice behind him saying, Atherton, if that was you, where would you be? He looked round to see who he was speaking to, and there's no one there. And he remembered the tract that burned the night before. It was the cause of his conversion. What a mercy. Year after year, week after week, indifferent. Sin angered him against the gospel. But God was merciful. How often God comes, speaks to sinners. The second illustration is the untamed bullock. Well, for those who are farmers know something about this. The bullock in Jeremiah's day was the tractor. And unless it was tamed, it was absolutely no use. There was a lot of work to do. And sometimes you would get two oxen put together and bar across them to pull a ply or some other huge weight. But if they weren't trained, it made the farmer's life miserable. God says of Ephraim, that was you, rebellious, stubborn, self-opinionated, determined to go your own way, believing in your own infallibility, your own cleverness, your own ingenuity, as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. You wanted to go your own way, your way you thought was better. Now what Solomon says to us, Everybody thinks their own way is right. 
Every man is right in his own eyes. Everybody thinks I know best. It's my life. God says, an untamed bullock. That's what an unconverted sinner is. And all that has to go. The Christian is the one who has been tamed. Aren't we? Aren't we the ones who have been brought into submission? No longer going our own way, thinking our own thoughts, following our own will. We need to be changed from the inside out so it's no longer my way, my life, but what pleases the Lord. His will is best. The unconverted, the untamed bullock. And we see it, don't we? Maybe for some of you can recall when you were teenager in the home and you thought, my parents are Christians and are far too now, far too tight. They just haven't got a clue what it's like to live out there. And oh, I can't wait till I'm free and I will follow my own will. I will do my own pleasure. I will have it all my own way. And I'm going to have a grand life. It's not going to be like theirs. Untamed. Then the next time we meet them, they're changed. What happened? The answer is, the Lord tamed me. Remember the Gadarene? What a crazy person he was. Nothing could be done to him from the outside. They tried chaining him up. Didn't work. There he was, roaming around the dead, naked, raving mad, crazy. Then the Lord came. And the most astonishing thing we read, we read him in his right mind, clothed and sitting at the feet of Jesus. The untamed bullock tamed. And that's our experience in many ways, isn't it? We were crazy. We were nuts. We thought we were brilliant. We thought we knew it all. We knew better than anybody else. And then the Lord came and he showed us our folly, our wickedness, and the danger and we were to ourselves, but we were on that broad road to hell. The untamed bullock. The third illustration is in verse 22, the backsliding daughter. Here's one who did know something of the Lord's ways and yet turned against it. She saw the world and she wanted it. She got a taste of the world. The Lord's ways were less attractive than the ways of the world. They were less pleasing. The way of the world, so delightful, so popular, seems so rewarding, and that's always how it seems. The world always seems more pleasurable, more rewarding, that it gives us more than Christ can give us. Yes, we heard the gospel 
seemed to be sort of on that narrow way, tended the means of grace and seemed to pray and read the Bible and so on. And then bit by bit, there's that subtle change. Start to argue and object about coming to church and having to do all of these religious duties. They're tiresome. They're embarrassing. All your friends are doing other things. Then they want university because they're, they're away from influence. They're away from everything. But you cannot have God and have the world. Can't have both. So these three illustrations are very pertinent, pointed. And they lead you to ask, does it describe me? Am I found amongst all of this? Well, he moves then, secondly, to describing conversion in these verses 18 and 19. The first thing you notice is the realization of folly. What does it say? I heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. That's a rather strange phrase, yet it's an important phrase. The idea is to come to a census that he shakes his head in astonishment that he was so foolish, so stupid, so arrogant. He sits and shakes his head. How could I have been so utterly foolish? How could I have missed so much? How could I have done what I have done? He realizes the enormity of his wickedness is astonished that he never saw it before with all that he'd been taught, perhaps. How could I have been so wicked? He shakes his head constantly. But how was he brought to that? He tells you, Thou hast chastised me. God and providence brought him to a fix, to a straight to a narrow place. God brought him into a position that he couldn't possibly get out of. You know, God has many tools at his disposal to bring a sinner to that point of realization. Sometimes he sends serious life-threatening illness and the physician says, you're going to die. If something dramatic doesn't happen, you're going to die. You need to send for the family. And the family come. And the physician says, this person's going to die. In other words, God sometimes has to bring us to the very brink of eternity with a life-threatening illness. Because a sinner is so hard that God has to do something like that to awaken us. Has to shaken us 
out of our folly. It's as if God comes alongside and he says, listen, are you seriously ready for eternity? You ready for death? You ready for what is to come? Standing before me in judgment and every single part of your life shall all be revealed and you will be punished for every single thought, word, and deed that was contrary to the law of God. From the moment you were born, you have been a sinner. Hundreds and hundreds and thousands of sins. Sometimes God brings loss. We think we have everything. Worked hard, acquired many things, and then and some strange, peculiar providence, it all just seems to disappear. The loss is there. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. One that we valued so much and God just came into the home and just took them away from us. Sometimes it's a child that was so treasured, he takes it out of the home. God takes things away shatters all our illusions about ourselves. And as we begin to reflect, like Ephraim, we consider the ways of things, question things. Ephraim shakes his head. Now I see. Now I understand. I am shocked and my utter folly and stupidity. How could I have been thus? And second, crying to God, turn thy me, he cries, and I shall be turned. He realizes here, there is no other answer, but God must take control of him God must do it. That this God in the exercise of his sovereignty must rule, must direct, must command, must work. There is no other hope outside of God. I am confident if I were to stand at that door and ask every person leaving, are you a Christian? And they say, yes. And I say to them, did you save yourself? They'll all say, impossible. The only one who could save me was God. And I've placed everything in the hands of God. With all of my weakness, with all of my wickedness, with everything, I was brought to realize it was wholly impossible to make myself right with God. God must make me right with him. So that I might live life his way and be brought to run the course that he has set before me. I need to be ruled by God. Because I've seen what life is like when ruled by my own will. So there's that crying to God. 
The third element, repentance. After I was turned, I repented. Those whom God turns, repent. They no longer love the sins that enslaved them. They no longer love the things that give them so much wicked pleasure. They no longer want what the world has to offer. They now see the madness of it all. Oh yes, they begin to stand out and apart. That's the consequence of repentance. We start to say no to sin. We start to say no to the follies of the world. When all our friends want us to do something, we know it's wrong, we say no. And whatever they throw back at us, we'll say, well, that's the way it is, friend. Because repentance means a turning away from all of the sin, all of the wickedness, all of the evil, to turn on to God. Not my will, but his will. We follow the Lord. Repentance. Yes, of course, it means, I say to the younger ones, it will most definitely mean perhaps that you stand out in company because of your supposed negativity. You know, Pilgrim's Progress, which is such a wonderful book, there you have the pilgrims in Vanity Fair. And it's got everything for seal. Every table is chock full of wonderful things. These pilgrims come in, and Bunyan writes, they didn't look like the people in Vanity Fair. They didn't talk like them. They spoke the language of Canaan, not the language of Vanity Fair. Everything about them was different. And as a consequence of that difference, you know what happens? They were arrested. Then there was the trial of all those prejudiced people who sat on the jury and all those wonderful names. Repentance is very important. It's more than being embarrassed. You know, sometimes we're caught on and we're very embarrassed. And we say we're sorry. And that is important. But repentance is more than embarrassment. Because once you get over the embarrassment, you know what happens? You gravitate back. Uh, you know, we make these great resolutions. I'm not going to do that again. And then because, you see, because we haven't really repented, we gravitate. Bunyan tells us, you know, for years he struggled with this. For years, he tried to make himself better, and he would make these great resolutions. He would amend his ways as far as and as best as he could. And then he says, I find out I was twice as bad the next time I came to my senses. He couldn't do it himself. There was no repentance. It was mere embarrassment. You see, repentance involves that recognition of the magnitude of guilt and the pollution of sin because it is against God. Christians understand this. This is why we need Psalm 51. We know the sinfulness of sin. But this repentance, it's a holy turning with vengeance against sin. There's a vengeance against sin. There's a holy living. The fourth thing, 
he speaks of his shame. Verse 19. I smote upon my thigh, I was ashamed, yea, even confounded. He says, after I was instructed, I smote, I was ashamed. In other words, he is confirming all the things he once delighted in. He's now ashamed of. All the things he had pleasure in, he lived for, he promoted even. And I've seen for what they are, they're all dust and ashes. That's what it all amounts to. Our lives before we were converted are but dust and ashes. Of no value. No credit. No worth. No recommendation. Paul understood all that. It was his own experience. So he says in Romans 6, For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things? Were off ye are now ashamed, for the end of those things is death. All the things that we got up to before we were converted, dust and ashes. And Paul says we're ashamed of it. And we don't want even to talk about it if we can help it. Except insofar as to say, the Lord changed me and saved me. We might put them in under a category of the fifth and the sixth or the seventh commandments and say, I broke the seventh commandment in some terrible, terrible ways without going into the detail. Or I broke the Eighth Commandment and did terrible things there too. Or I broke the Ninth Commandment. And I recall all the occasions, best as I can, I broke the Ninth Commandment and I'm ashamed of it all. And the tragedy of it all is it's worth nothing. Nothing. I'm ashamed of it. You see then what conversion is like, what true conversion involves. And here Jeremiah says, I describe it for you. But then 30, we move to verse 20, the basis of conversion. What's the basis of conversion? Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I speak against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. What is the basis? It's the kindness and mercy of God. That's the basis. Not because of anything good in the one converted. Do you think that any sinner saved by grace is going to stand in heaven and say to all who are around them, I'm here because I have done something wonderful. I have committed my life to Jesus and that's why I'm in heaven. Oh no, my friends. You'll most definitely not be saying that. You will be saying I am here. Because of the kindness and mercy of God. I shouldn't be here. 
If I had got justice, I'd be in hell. But God's kindness and God's mercy has brought me into the kingdom of heaven. Not for any good in me. There's no other explanation for it. There's no other ground of hope. The only way our life can be rebuilt in this world, the only way things can be made right, is this way. The kindness and mercy of God to lay hold upon us and change us. You know, in conversion, there is that moment of understanding after I was instructed. Like the Philippian jailer. He comes in with a light. Isn't that interesting? And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? That moment when he suddenly realizes. That's what Ephraim is saying. After I was instructed. That overwhelming sense of shame, that being confounded, the weight of sin. It's there. He says, I did bear the reproach of my youth. All those years that I spent in sin. All those years that I lived in vanity. All those years I lived in wickedness and engaged in wickedness. It's all now before him. The guilt and the folly and the sense of being under the wrath of God. Is there any hope for such a person? Yes. The kindness and mercy of God. And where is it seen? Well, it is typified for you throughout the Old Testament, isn't it? You know, the substitutionary sacrifices that are set out there in Leviticus, which is all fulfilled ultimately in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is why Paul in Hebrews spends so much time in chapters 1 and 2 on the glory of Christ, so that in chapter 3, 1, he says, consider Christ. And then chapters 4 through 7, he takes you and gives you a portrait of Jesus Christ. And then he comes to the summary in chapter 8. And it's a huge summary, by the way. So he starts in chapter 8, now then, this is the sum, and the summary just runs on for three chapters, 8, 9, and 10. Because there's just so much to summarize. There's just so much to say when it comes to all that the Old Testament has taught about Jesus Christ. So that when you get to chapter 11, faith in Jesus Christ is properly understood. You have those words in Hebrews 11, verses 24 to 26. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Well, there's that grand negative. Choosing, rather, here comes a difficult but fascinating part. Choosing, rather, to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ's greater riches 
than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. So what's Paul telling us about Moses? He's saying, well, look, it says, Moses waited all up. On the one side, Egypt. On the other side, Christ. And he says he chose Christ. What's on Christ's side? The reproach of Christ. Suffering affliction with the people of God. How many negatives there are. And yet that's exactly what he wanted. In his estimation, in his weighing of things up. All the treasures, all the riches in Egypt could not outweigh Christ. He conquered sin. With a look at Christ, Christ was greater. And the people of Christ were greater than the people in Egypt, even though they were suffering affliction. That's what a Christian does. The psalmist is a wonderful psalm. You can look for it yourself. But he describes how here you have the believer, people of God, and the unbeliever. There's that invisible line of division. You know, when you go to a wedding, you see it certainly at weddings, you know. Everybody's there in the meeting house for the wedding, and then when it comes to the reception, you start to see that division. So you start to see believers bit by bit, they sort of coalesce on one side of the room, and then you see those who are not converted, they coalesce around the other part of the room. Uh, because even though the believer, the believers aren't much, aren't worth much, well, that's our company. We'll take that side. And that's the side of your Christian you want to be on. Isn't it? That's what a, a sinner converted does. I want to be amongst the Lord's people. Are they suffering affliction? Well, that's okay. I'm still with them. I'm not going to turn my back on them because, well, you know, they haven't got the fame and the fortune and the popularity that everybody else has. And many people want to gravitate towards the great personalities. I don't want to run after them. And then you know, it's like being at a garden party. And they usually invite some famous person, don't they? And everyone's excited at being there. But when you get there, of course, they're all hanging around some character who's a godless wretch, whose morality is dreadful, whose ideology is dreadful. And then you meet a Christian and say, well, we'll take a walk off through, round through these trees in the garden and all the rest of it and enjoy each other's company and let them characters get on with it. That's what Moses is saying. I'm standing with the people of God who are suffering affliction because that's more valuable to me than all that Egypt has to offer me. Through conversion, 
Let me come to a couple of points of application. Surely the first must be this, the glory of grace. The glory of grace is the change it makes in a life. What does the Bible say? All things are passed away. That's the glory of grace. Grace changes our view of things so that we can see through things for what they are. We can see the value in spiritual things and the folly of sinful things. And so Paul uses that phrase, ye were but now. You see it all over Paul's epistles. That's the glory of grace, the before and after. Well, how many of us here in this gap have that before and after? It doesn't matter if you're converted at 5, 50, or 90. You were but now. That's the glory of grace. Sometimes maybe we're a wee bit too cynical that grace can change anyone. Well, the glory of grace is that it does change sinners. And then secondly, I would urge you, take no comfort in anything outside of Christ. It is in Christ where the love the mercy, the kindness, and the grace of the Father is seen, which is why Christ is called the kindness and love of God appeared. Take no comfort in anything outside of Christ. We don't know how our lives are going to turn out, how things are going to progress over the next year, if we live another year, five years, whatever. We don't know how things will be. None of us know. And we kind of try to make some kind of plans, don't we? This happens, hopefully this will occur. We try to sort it all out, don't we? Lay down some things that hopefully will give a certain security for when we get older. If you're five years of age, you don't care about that, you'll trust your parents. You get the 50 eye ever and your parents are dead and you're wondering, well, I don't know what's going to happen. What are we going to do? Oh, my friends, put all your hope, all your trust, all your confidence in Christ. That's not saying be foolish, be careless, but make sure all your hope is in Christ, all your comfort is in Christ, all your planning is in Christ, all your priorities include Christ. Don't look outside of Christ for your future. And then finally, I say to you in light of Psalm 51, the Christian life begins with repentance. And repentance continues through that Christian life. Why is that? Because though reigning sin has been conquered and dealt with, there is remaining indwelling sin. And so we are constantly tempted, tested, tried, and we feel. So we must still continue to repent of our sins. And that's why you need Psalm 51, at the very least. 
as a constant reminder that in our pilgrimage on the way to that celestial city, we make many mistakes for which we must repent of daily. May the Lord bless these words to your hearts. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we bless thee for the clarity of thy word. And thy word describes perfectly every topic it deals with. And so it deals perfectly with the whole matter of conversion and describes perfectly the unconverted and those constants that prove conversion and the basis of it all is thy kindness and mercy. Oh, how thankful we are that thou didst show us mercy, that thou wast kind to us. For we know now what we deserved. We could never have earned anything from thee. And how glad we are that thou didst show mercy and kindness to us. What a mercy and kindness to have a public means of grace. What a mercy and kindness to have the word read. What a mercy and kindness to have the word preached. What a mercy and kindness that these warnings and these instructions are given. Then thy mercy and kindness, we pray that every single person in this church has Christ in their lives that they understand and know the importance of Jesus Christ. That when we meet again on the day of judgment, we shall all be on the same side, the side of those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That side where the Savior welcomes all of his children into heaven. What a tragedy to go from this meeting, to meet in heaven on the day of judgment and to see ones we knew and loved being taken by the angels and cast into eternal damnation. Oh, Heavenly Father, we plead with thee that all who are here and all our loved ones shall join us in heaven for all eternity. This we pray in the Saviour's name. Amen.